Welcome back to another episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining us today. So a quick introduction before we get into today's episode, which is going to take on a little bit different nature. I think you all find it interesting. But a couple of things I wanted to follow up on that we had talked about in previous episodes. So the Sedena hack documents from the hacker group Guacamayo. I have good news. I've been granted full access to the database. Bad news is it's about six terabytes worth of information. So don't expect me to have a full analysis anytime soon, but we'll start going through some of the documents and and looking at them and, and presenting things that might be of interest. One of the things that I've already done, and I really want people to be aware of this, Be very, very, very suspicious of headlines about the the hacks and what the documents say. I found and verified that some some of the headlines tend to be more definitive than the documents are. And what's really bad, especially it seems in, in this little niche area, is everybody repeats the same information or repeats the same misinformation. And so I've seen a headline recently about uh, Los Chapitos and and whether the DEA and the Mexican military knew where they were and whether they picked them up. And we'll talk about that in a different uh, episode. But again, the headlines can be deceptive. So if you're interested Read the article, look at what they say when they're quoting from the documents as opposed to just accepting that what's in the headline is accurate. Um, and, and I think that one of the, the things that I'm finding out is the amount of misinformation out there. You know, one of the things we've talked about when we were talking last week about the different cartels and things is it's not like there's a roster someplace. You know, it's not fantasy football fantasy cartels, you know, who's your starting lineup. They, so there's lots of innuendo, lots of rumors, and you got to be really careful about what's getting repeated. I'll mention this again at the end. And in, in, um, when we are talking about next week's episode, but next week we're going to talk about the AFO. And last week when I was talking about them, I said that the, Ariano Felix brothers were nephews of Felix Gallardo. And I can find that information in about 5,000 different places. And yet, the person who knows them better than anybody else that I know has told me that that's not right, that that's repeated poor information. So, just really increases the need to be very, very cautious about what you're reading, who you're listening to. And what the, you know, what's actually being said? Are are you seeing quotes from documents or just people's uh, encapsulation of them? So another one of the reasons why in my newsletter, again, I think people um, who are listening would love the newsletter. It's quick. It's an easy read. It's just like 10 things that have happened in the world. I, I enjoy writing it. I enjoy researching it. But one of the things I'm trying to do is where possible, where it's not just a you know an AP news story or something to give credit to 
and and oftentimes link to the the original source so people can determine for themselves what uh what they want to believe and what they don't and what's accurate information and what isn't all right we're going to do something a little bit different today over the last what 10 months now that we've been doing this podcast i've started to get some questions um questions from listeners questions from friends questions from family and i have with us today nate Nate Ballman, who is my assistant right-hand man. He's the poor guy who does a lot of good research for me and listens to every single one of my wild theories. Um, But what we've done is we've taken and pulled out, I don't know, eight or ten questions or so that people have had. We haven't rehearsed this, so hopefully it doesn't sound rehearsed, but we're going to go through and just try to answer some of the questions that people seem to have about Mexican cartels and a little bit about uh, the Camarena case and the Guadalajara cartel. But a lot of the questions that, that we've been getting recently have been far more general Mexican cartel current, uh, uh, current events type questions. So with that, Nate, are you still around? I am. All right. Fire away at will. Okay. So um, for number one, we have, uh, I mean, for in terms of questions, um, why doesn't the U.S. use military to fight the cartels? And, okay, and that question comes up quite a bit. And, um, you know, you've heard some great posturing from some uh, some politicians recently. So let's let's answer that question in a couple different ways. Number one, you know, Mexico is a sovereign country, right? You don't just invade a sovereign country, especially one with as close a relationship as deep economic ties as Mexico. Now, some will say. Uh, you know, we, we invaded Panama, there's precedent, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Panama isn't Mexico, right? Much smaller, much less uh, connected. You know, it's not on the border. There's lots of issues right. that come up, uh, you know, with actually invading a sovereign country. Number two, while I think people are... Um, in favor of, obviously, fighting drug trafficking if and however we can, I wonder what our attitude would be, what's the stomach for it going to be if U.S. military went into Mexico and there are deaths, there are gun battles, and all of a sudden you have young soldiers dying in Mexico fighting the cartels. Right. Uh, I, I think that creates, you know, some, a whole different set of problems. And then the third question becomes, what if, what if they went in and they wiped out the Sinaloa cartel? Are you going right. to occupy Mexico for forever? Are you going to leave and then have the Sinaloa cartel part two come back? Or, if there's look as long as there's 
a demand in the United States and elsewhere, somebody's going to fill that gap. So then are you going to have the cartels flee Mexico and set up camp in Costa Rica or Nicaragua or Honduras and do the exact same things of trying to get the drugs into the U.S.? And then do you have to fight all of Central America? I'm just not sure that when you really think about it, um, using the military in that way solves the problem of drug trafficking from Central America into the United States. Yeah, completely agree. And also, like you said about the sovereign nation thing, it would be embarrassing for the Mexican government, and uh, they probably don't want any intervention to begin with. So (laughs) and again, there's always that problem. Absolutely. And if you're down in Mexico, um, though there's a great relationship, you know, lots of trade. um, There's also an underlying wariness with respect to the U S. Yeah. And, Um, I think you would find out very quickly that the average Mexican citizen would not welcome American military in Mexico. And then you're fighting an entirely different battle. Yep. Well, they're already weary of their own military in general, you know, from what it seems. So you know, foreign military coming into their country when there's a lot of also indigenous groups down there, you know, I I can understand why it would be very problematic to send. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of those statements that sounds good. Hey, let's use the military and the drug trafficking. But you actually really have to think about it, and I just don't think it works. Right. I agree. Um, so moving on to second most popular question, um, what is the most powerful cartel in present day? Okay. I'm going to answer that in a variety of ways (laughs) as I want to do never a simple answer. So I think the, the the most obvious answer is to say the two most powerful cartels at the moment from a broad perspective are the Sinaloa cartel and CJNG. Um, and coincidentally, you know, they're battling each other quite extensively, especially in Zacatecas at the moment. And you'll see some of that in the newsletter if you want to look at it. Um, so those are, those are the two most powerful. They also... Um, seem to have their tentacles into the military and the government more than any other. They're two of the the longest standing. You also have El Mencho and El Mayo who've been in control for a long time. So the, you know, the divisions aren't as great, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, you have Los Chapitos and, and El Mayo's group in the Sinaloa cartel. But if you if you combine those groups, and by the way, in Zacatecas, you know it really seems that the two groups are are aligned 
against CJNG. So the notion that you know they're they're completely fractured, it, it shouldn't uh, you shouldn't think that it's too great of a fracture because they still would rather work with each other than work with somebody like CJNG, who again keep in mind too, you know, those torpedoes have a particular dislike for CJNG and El Mencho. So you have those two. So there's that. Um, one of the ones that that's getting a lot of attention, I believe, from DEA in particular is uh, La Familia Nueva Michoacana, which seems to be one of, if not the biggest suppliers of fentanyl going into the United States, including rainbow fentanyl. Now, we've talked, again, in the newsletter in particular, about rainbow fentanyl and whether it's, you know, people in the U.S. officials have said it's it's um, a way to to entice kids. And a lot of people have said, no, that's not the case. It's really to distinguish its product. But fentanyl, obviously a huge issue, large concern in the U.S. And Michoacan seems to be the primary um, location for much of the the fentanyl being um, being distributed today. Uh, again, in the newsletter, I'm going to put um, an article, or attach an article that talks about the the mindset of the cartels of moving away from kind of natural drugs, cocaine, heroin, marijuana, to methamphetamine and fentanyl. Um, and then there obviously are regional issues. Um, and so in different locations, you can have different um, groups that are that are still powerful. If you uh, if you're in Tijuana, there are still you know remnants of of AFO that are prominent there. There are places like Brownsville where the um, the Gulf Cartel diminished from what it once was still has power. So if you're talking nationally, you know you're talking CJNG and Sinaloa. If you're talking fentanyl, you may be talking about cartels in Michoacan, and then you've got the the regional differences. So, just out of curiosity, when you say rainbow fentanyl, are you talking about just like multicolored exactly uh, pills? I guess. Yep. Okay. Um. If it's, I guess if they're busting people with rainbow fent or rainbow fentanyl, does that mean that they're coming from multiple sources, but all ending up in kind of the same hands? Um. So, you know, the distribution network into the U.S. it, it you know, follows along with some of the uh you know the major cartels so there's different routes in different territories for uh you know Sinaloa cartel or CJNG or others in the United States and you know but i think that there's been um you know some effort to to be able to trace back where a lot of the the drugs originate from right well and i guess if you're 
sending it over the border, you're probably kind of going to end up grouping some of it together <laughs> as it gets picked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things they say about the rainbow fentanyl again is, is um, there's actually a, an effort to, to distinguish products. And so different groups will have slightly different um, colorations or different schemes in order to kind of identify their product and to distinguish it from other products. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then follow up when you say that the cartels are kind of moving away from quote natural drugs. Um, do you think that that's a product of them kind of just wanting to not have the land space? You know, I mean, cocaine takes up an area of land, uh, pot, you know, poppy and heroin that takes up, you know, fields that could be noticed from helicopters. Do you think that there might be an effort down there in Mexico that's kind of leading to, um, I guess this stuff moving more towards manufactured drugs versus natural drugs. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the reasons that you say it is, is, or as you say, is the fact that you require a lot of acreage. It's easier to be found. It's also expensive. Um, right. You know, you go back to you know the the famous buffalo in Chihuahua. You know the the amount of acreage that you had was enormous. The amount of water being used was enormous. The uh, you know they had what seven thousand employees, something along those lines. So, yeah. and each one of whom can tell somebody else about things. You know, so the 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 whole infrastructure becomes. Um, problematic, and especially in current day with, you know, with cell phones and and social media and everything. So I think that's one thing. Number two is from a cost perspective, it's just it's cheaper, you know. Right. Um, and number three, uh, you and this is a topic we haven't really even touched on, but the degree to which some of the the manufactured drugs originate in or affiliated with organizations in China means that um, some of the cartels don't even have to do the manufacturing anymore. You know, they bring it in and, and, and then they distribute it. They become more distributors than just manufacturers. Um, And again, that, that, that may impact, um, you know, your profit margin, so to speak, but it also increases the amount that you can do, um, it decreases your your footprint. Um, so I think there's a variety of reasons why they're going that way. I think I mentioned that when I was at that summit in uh, about Mexican cartels uh, a few weeks ago, um, a, a law enforcement official or a former uh, law enforcement official had said that it was his view that fentanyl was going to completely replace heroin uh, you know, for all practical purposes in the next couple of years, that's a, which is right. a pretty profound statement, especially given, um, you know, the number of deaths associated with it. 
Well, and it, it, going back to what you just said with the footprint and everything, it's kind of like in the 80s when they transferred, you know, they were like, oh, well, we can ship smaller quantities of cocaine and make more money versus marijuana, which we need huge fields for and obviously takes up a lot of space when you're trying to ship it. Absolutely. Um, and and so. when you go back to those days, it wasn't so much that they were, you know, they were manufacturing or growing, you know, cocaine in in um, in Mexico as they were transferring it from, you know, South America from Colombia and stuff. So I, I think the the precedent for that is has been set as well. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing that we've talked about mentioned last week is. There's a whole lot of things that these cartels do to make money that don't involve drugs, and some of which aren't even illegal. Um, and, and so the degree to which you can, again, minimize your footprint, minimize the the infrastructure, minimize costs, um, allows you to do, you know, to, to make huge quantities of money uh, in a in a safer and more efficient way. Right. At least from Absolutely. their, from their van, vantage point. Um, so I think we got that one pretty good. Uh, moving on to number three, um, most asked question as of late. Um, how have the drug lords um, Almencho and Almayo avoided capture and or arrest? Good question. So I think there's a couple of potential answers. And I know for a fact that some people who are listening to this probably know the answer far better than, than I. But number one, I think that they've... Um, they've done a fairly good job of laying relatively low. You know, we've talked about it in the past, the fact that they, and I, I think, you know, El Chapo was a little too out there, so to speak. Um, yep. So, so that's part of it though. You know, Carl Quintero recently was picked up and it's not like he was doing a lot of that. So, so that's number one. Number two uh, you, you have to look at their connections to the um, the military and the government, and the degree to which you know early on the, the, it was the DFS, and now you've got successor organizations, and you've got the military, and to what extent have um, El Mencho and El Mayo avoided capture? Um, simply because they paid off the right people or somebody was tipping them off at the right time. I think there are a couple of different stories about that specifically happening with respect to El Mencho. Um, I think, you know, the idea that El Mayo had uh, plastic surgery and we may not know exactly what it looks like, it could be a, a little bit of it. I also think that, Again, recognizing the split with El Chapitos and, and the fact that there was the split, you know, in with El Mencho. But there are also people who've the identity of the cartels is somewhat tied to them. 
And so the the incentive for um, anyone to you know to roll on them or, or anything is low. Um, and then I think you know look let's 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 not ignore the obvious. They're smart. Somehow right. they've whatever the answer is, they've been really good at it, right? Um, and, and so, uh, I, I think it's a whole bunch of, of little things all put together. My guess is if you ask most DEA agents with knowledge of this, they would say the single biggest, uh, thing is that they've been able to pay off the right people at the right time. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, going back to how how they operate and how they live versus, you know, people like El Chapo. Um, When it comes to like um, El Mencho, you know, it's, he's allegedly living in rural areas, mostly in the mountains. I mean, similar to what most of them have done, but the, the lifestyle that he lives is just very modest. And, he has a lot of people who look out for incoming threats, I guess, uh, you know, be it the mil- Mexican military in any form or, uh, or anything else, maybe another rival cartel or something like that, that he has a lot of lookouts well, that let me can give warn you- him in advance. Yeah. Let me give you <laughs> The, the scene from a movie that I'm always thinking of is the Hole in the Wall gang with um, Butch Cassidy and its Sundance Kid. You know, when they go riding into the canyon and they got lookouts all over the place. So, and again, this isn't foolproof, obviously. But if they're in a rural area, they usually are in rural areas that they control. They have family. They have friends. They have employees. It's not like you can just drive up you can't go through the canyon to get to butch cassidy and the sundance kids hideout because there's only one road and everybody's going to see where you're coming well it's the same thing and and i do think that that helps um you know and we talked last week or the week before about some of the rumors of how they they caught carl and even tricking him by having you know, several helicopters and then the, and him thinking they were just going overhead and, uh, and then, you know, having like the last one or two swoop in and, and getting him. Um, I think that it's, you know, if you're in a, if you're in an isolated area, the ability to, to get to them in, in any, you know, material way is difficult. Obviously you could go in with helicopters again, like they did, but You've got the issue of who's going to be, you know, who's going to tell them that they're coming. Right. Well, and uh, when it comes to El Mayo um, and his ability to evade capture, um, his son said that uh, he was paying a budget of a hundred or $1 million a month, a month in of bribes, of bribes. Yep. Absolutely. So, the Mexican officials. So, you know, I, mean, I just thought of this, and I'm I, I so I 
with full disclosure, once it comes out of my mouth, it could be stupid. But, um, you know, I wonder if at this point in time, there's a a feeling amongst some anti-narcotics folks, whether in the U.S. or in Mexico, that maybe El Mayo is, in particular is a known quantity. Yeah. And um, there is some value to stability. And that if they went in and you got him, that creates a power vacuum. And who knows who comes in and who knows who does what? Yeah. I'm not, you Just know, like it's, I mean, that's happened so many times in the past. Already yeah, and it certainly happened, you know, with the the U.S. mafia in, and you know, or the mafia in the U.S. and things where. So I, I don't know. I, I again, that that's that's complete hypothesis on my part. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it's, it's it's not verified, but it's it's out there. <laughs> um. So moving on, question number four. Uh, do the cartels target tourists? Okay, I'm going to answer that with a general no, but with some caveats. Um, so the general answer, I think, is no. I, I, by and large, if, you, if you're a tourist in most locations in tourist areas in Mexico you're going to be fine. They, that's not where they're going after people. You know, the kidnappings aren't extensive and, and things of that nature. So, but a couple of things to think about. Number one is there've been some recent press stories of folks getting killed when they were in places they shouldn't be. Right. So, you know, if you're going to go to Rosarita, don't start driving aimlessly into the countryside if you're in chihuahua for a reason you know think about where you're going so that's number one number two um the greatest danger to tourists from cartels is being in the wrong place at the wrong time so if there's a gunfight between cartel groups frankly they're not going to care who gets you know hit in the in the process collateral damage isn't going to mean anything to them and most of the tourist um deaths and and other things that i'm aware of in the last few months have been that way that um you know innocent bystander type of situation so I think there's there's that to keep in mind. Again, when I was at that summit, Robert Almonte, who uh, puts on the summit and and knows more about the cartels and things than I ever will, says that he would be very leery of going to Mexico, even in a number of the tourist spots, just because of that issue, uh, because of the collateral damage. But are they targeting tourists? Are they targeting Americans? I think the answer to that is no. And, you know, going back to, like you said, collateral damage, I mean, that even happens here in America, you know, with gang violence. There's always you always hear about, you know, a, a 11 year old or something Absolutely. was shot at a park, you know, because there was a drive by shooting. So, I mean, that's pretty. 
I, I hate to say it, but it's par for the course, you know, that's kind of just what happens when it comes to <laughs> Absolutely. I think people it's... wanting to kill other people. But yeah, if you've got a gun and somebody else has a gun, you're going to, sh- you know, they're shooting um, and, and probably not paying a whole, you know, not caring who else is around or certainly not stopping to war, you know, uh, excuse me. Right. As soon as you're done with your margarita, could you move out of the way so that we can have our our fight? Yeah, okay. uh, uh-huh. Though it'd well, be nice, you know. Yeah, and we have to kill this guy who's <laughs> in swimming trunks over there. And anyways, um, yeah, and it, it doesn't seem like there's much incentive in general. No, to, and, and you know, if, if you're in a cartel, you don't want to be going around killing Americans or you know, Canadians, Europeans, but whatever have you, but yeah. And I think in the past there was kind of, um, at least there was the, the, the assertions that there was a little bit of an unwritten rule that the cartel stayed away from the tourist areas. Um, that's not, I, I think that might've been overstated to begin with. There certainly is more of a fight for Quintana Roo in that area than, than there has been in the past. Acapulco has had some some things happen recently. Um, again, Tulum, there have been a couple of gunfights that have injured folks. So there may be more activity. Um, you know, there wasn't too long ago when um, there was a, a gunfight on a beach in Cancun. So, you know, you do have some of these activities which, uh, you know, as I said, some people who are very, very knowledgeable in this area say would, would just worry them about going. I, I think, uh, you know, I would stay as much in the mainstream tourist areas as I could, which may or may not be what you want for a Mexican vacation. <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, I, I certainly would not go to especially like in Acapulco or in Tulum, go to places that were kind of off the beaten path. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to move on to number five here. Um, so this one is how active are Mexican uh, cartels in the United States? Well, I think that depends on how you're defining active. Um, but having said that, the major Mexican cartels, that being CJNG, uh, Sinaloa, uh, BLO, uh, to, to a lesser extent, the, the remnants of the Garf Cotel, maybe some Zetas, um clearly have networks in the United States. They have territories. Excuse me. One of the bigger questions becomes to what extent are they bringing their own people into the United States to kind of facilitate those networks or to what extent are they tapping into utilizing, working with existing networks, existing gangs, things of that nature. But I think it's safe to say 
that most major drug operations in the United States have some connection to narcotics cartels in, in Mexico. You know, yeah. um, in the newsletter, we I, I usually try to point out one or two a week um, just to show kind of the, you know, where things are. Uh, you know, we've in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about um, drug busts in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Chicago, in Atlanta. This week, there was a large bus just outside of Denver um, that apparently had direct ties to the Sinaloa cartel. So I think, you know, and, and then it's obvious if you're if you're talking about, you know, Laredo or Phoenix or Los Angeles and San Diego, their relationship in large part because of history and their proximity. So the the connections between the cartels and the U.S. are significant and they're active and um, and they're they're problematic. I recently uh, watched a documentary that was saying that kind of uh, El Chapo's whole demise was because of how active the cartel was in Chicago. And um, yeah, Um, that's kind of what ended up being his whole. I mean, it was the same DEA agent who led the case, I guess, for you know, is over a decade. And and I think, um, and this is probably going off on a tangent more than, than we need to. Yeah. He made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) And, and and again, um, I think, and you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but there were actual times when, you know, one of these two brothers would call up and they would actually call El Chapo and they were get him on the phone and you know, their phones had been bugged both before and after they turned uh, as witnesses. Um, and, and so I think at some point El Chapo's ego got to the point where um, kind of common sense safety protocols weren't being followed. <laughs> yeah, I think that the... I'm I'm not too familiar with the with the brothers thing, but I think that the third time he was arrested was because he went down from the mountains um, in northwest Mexico with a bunch of his you know bodyguards to go order a bunch of tacos, and yeah, that, that was the third time had, he was arrested. They went into Los for, Mochis and and were were seen there. Um, one of the things that's interesting, um, since we're talking about it, and I'll have to dig this up and I'll present it in, in either the newsletter or um, in, a, in a future podcast. But there's some discussion about um, now that even in Mexico, even in the poorest part, parts of Mexico, you know, cell phones and social media are ubiquitous that that's causing far more issues for the cartels than they ever thought because you yeah. can trace those things. You can, um, and even if it's not tracing spe- specific ones, the there's the ability to, to recognize that this cell tower is doing an inordinate amount of relaying 
you know, the activity here is greater than it should be. What's going on? Well, let's go look at it. You know, if you're in the military Um, and, and where for a while technology was aiding the cartels, it may actually be something that comes back to haunt them because of how well it can be traced or recognized um, and the footprint God, we said footprint a lot today, but the footprint that it leaves and whether that's um, a good thing or not. Yeah, and I th- <laughs> All right, when you said you said footprint a lot, I'm realizing I'm over here talking way too much, probably. <laughs> um, so m- moving on, things are specific to the Guadalajara cartel. Um, number one question. Why do you not call it a cartel? Ah, so that's somebody who's listening to me rant and rave. So I, I've, I've got a couple of reasons for it. Um, two of which are, are kind of technical and one of which is, is a broader base. So we know for sure that prior to Agent Camarena's kidnapping, Nobody referred to them as the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel. That was something that came afterwards. In fact, they were actually called or referred to by the DEA in Guadalajara as La Familia, right? Because they all came from the, the same basic place, kind of all had family connections. So that's part of it. Part of it is that I don't like the name Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel because it... it, it Again, it's it's kind of this manufactured thing that, that I don't think represents what was going on. The fact of the matter is you had a number of drug traffickers operating in Mexico, operating in Guadalajara at about the same time. Remember, at the time of Agent Camarena's kidnapping, the DEA didn't even have a picture of Caro Quintero. Right. So it wasn't like it was, you know, this was this big entity that everybody knew about. And, and that becomes a little bit of a fiction after the fact. From a from a more technical standpoint. Um, you know, I look at cartels. More as a a vertical as opposed to a horizontal structure. Right. It, it's more of a military, yeah, you know, or, a cartel is more of a military structure. Yeah. Or a mafia versus yeah, you know, you've got the Don, you've got the consigliere, you've got these people, you've got the soldiers and you go w- work your way down. I think what you had in Guadalajara, even if you want to talk the big three, let's say they were the big three. And, and Fonseca, Caro, and, and Felix Gallardo. If, if that's the, the case, I think that the evidence is more that they knew each other, they collaborated when it was convenient, they did their own thing when it was convenient. Felix Gallardo clearly was more on the, you know, the cocaine side um, Rafa far more on the marijuana side. The degree to which they interacted, 
I don't really know. I think, and and some of this is hypothesis. Some of it is you know my um, interpretation of what I've read. But I think the discussions, the the portrayals, let's call it that, of the tightness of the three of them, particularly between Carl and uh, Felix Gallardo, is overstated. You know, I, I, I said this was real early on, but there was a great quote from a lawyer in Colombia who worked with um, various of, of the drug dealers, Escobar and others, and he said, you know, there is no cartel. They're drug dealers. They right. <laughs> they help each other when it helps them, and they ignore each other when it helps them. So, so that's that's part of it. I just so I think from a structural element, they're really not cartels. They're not cartels like you would see with the Sinaloa cartel now, like you would see with uh, the CJNG now. When you look at the uh, the uh, the organizational charts that the we're showing in some of the the hacked documents that have come out. You know, it's very much a top to bottom structure. It's very much of a pyramid structure. That seems to me to be far more cartel like than what existed in um, in Guadalajara at the time. And I just there's something to me about saying Guadalajara narcotics cartel that makes them bigger and more important or more prestigious than, than I think is, is justified. I just don't like the term. Yeah, I completely, and it's kind of like, you know, if you're a Corvette guy and you own a Corvette and you're going to go to a car show, you're going to park next to the Corvettes. Um, If you're a Harley Davidson guy, you're going to find a biker bar or something with fellow Harley Davidson riders. So, you know, it's like uh, if you're a drug dealer or a trafficker um, who's higher up in Mexico, who are you going to hang out with? Well, and, and you know, that's traffickers back, in yeah. a way. And that also goes to these, you know, the, um, the, the alleged conspiracy meanings. And some of them were like at baptisms and things. And, and you know, they, they end up being big parties. Mexico... I think, you know, Mexicans have more of a familial relationship. I, I think I mentioned at one point, um, I, I compared it to, like, in, in, in uh, you know, in Denver, there's a big Greek community. And, my goodness, if they have a baptism, every Greek right. in Denver shows up. <laughs> I mean, it's a big deal. And that's just how it is. Well, if you're all from the same hometown, you're going to show up to the same parties. And if, you know, to your point... If cops get together and, and talk at, at a social gathering, what do they end up talking about a lot? Cop stuff. Lawyers talk about lawyer stuff. You, you may talk about football too, but you, know, you start talking about, well, they're going to talk about drug dealing. That's what they do. So right. <laughs> I don't think it means anything necessarily. And again, I don't, it certainly wasn't, you know, this, you know, there were no, no like corporate formalities associated with it. They didn't have meetings. They didn't check in on a daily basis. They didn't have, you know, minutes, anything like that. Right. Um, okay. So I'm 
going on here too long. Um, so keeping with the Guadalajara cartel, who was in charge of it? <laughs> All right. Here's... I... Uh... <laughs> There's a couple of ways to answer that. So one is to say, to follow up on what we just said and said nobody. Um, I think that, you know, saying in charge, it might be overstating it. But I think Felix Gallardo had a bit of an elevated status amongst all of them. For I agree. A, for a couple of reasons. One was, I think he's just smarter than the others. And Fonseca probably was a lot more intelligent than he gets credit for. Rafa clearly had some street smarts, but he wasn't educated. So I think, you know, just from that, his style, his political connections made Felix in a little bit of an elevated status position. Number two. Well, and he also... Oh, I mean, he owned businesses. Yeah, um, you know, he he was more of a businessman, and he's older. Well, not than Fonseca, of course, but than Caro for sure. Right. Um, but he, he anyways, also had more, he had more political connections. He had more families uh, or connections, I think, with the other traffickers. You know, the the plaza leaders at the time than. Did you know Fonseca or Carl for sure? He also had the connection to, um, you know, Matabayasteros, and then to the Colombians that gave him, from an economic standpoint, um, an elevated status. So I think, you know, um, and and I know I keep saying I think, but we don't know in, in a lot of respects. But I think he probably had an elevated status. I do think that the representations in some of the shows, for instance, Narco Mexico, you know, that he was kind of the, the CEO and the master player and kept everybody in control. It might be overdone a little bit. Um, but certainly... I, I think that he had some elevated status over Caro, or at least had, um, if not, again, I, I don't want to say in charge, because I think that that, that maybe portrays something a little bit differently. But, you know, just the circumstances, he probably had more control over things. Um, I think we talked one time about the question and the hypothesis that some have had that the money for Buffalo came for a large part from Felix and that part of Caro's angst over Buffalo wasn't necessarily the, you know, the losses or anything else directly. It was the fact that he then owed um, Felix and, and that that created issues. So I, I think if you're going to say, you know, who was at the, the top of the org chart, Okay, I don't want to say that. I forget that I said that. Who was, you know, who had the most authority, who had the greatest influence over the cartel? Probably was uh, Felix, though, you know, I mean, Carl did, you know, 
Carl grew a lot of marijuana. Carl paid off a lot of people. Um, so moving on to more of a Camarena related focus, uh, Kiki Camarena. Um, what would you say? This is another top question here. Uh, Felix Gallardo's uh, role in the kidnapping was. All right. And I'm. <laughs> this is my opinion, my opinion only. Based on everything that I've read and believe and. Uh, conjecture based on on some known facts. I think his role in the kidnapping and the plot was little to none. Um, Number one, I don't believe that there were all these uh, conspiracy meetings where it was, you know, where the kidnapping was discussed. And if there were meetings or if there were events where it was discussed and Felix Gallardo was there, I don't think they were, you know, conspiracy planning meetings. They might be, again, a baptism where they all were. So that's number one. Number two, I don't think Felix Gallardo was at Lope de Vega much, if at all, while Agent Camarena was there. Yep. Um, You know, again... I know we've talked about this before, but Sergio Espino Verdeen, when he was first arrested and interrogated in Mexico City, says Felix Carter wasn't there. Yeah. Um, I think there's there's ample evidence that uh, the whole airport confrontation with DEA and DFS was. Uh, Constructed by Felix to try to um, to trap Caro Quintero. Um, I think that Felix was too smart to think that kidnapping a DEA agent was a good idea. And so, if he was involved, I think he was. If he was involved pre-kidnapping at all, it was superficial at best. If he was if um, he was involved after the fact, it was in damage control at best, and I think the the portrayal in uh, Narcos Mexico that some uh, some high official in the Mexican government kind of forced the kidnapping and forced. Felix to go along with it is um, makes for a nice teleplay, makes for a nice episode, but isn't based in fact. Again, not in any way to say, not to suggest that Felix Gallardo, you know, shouldn't be in jail, that he didn't do lots of things. Just, I'm not convinced that he was involved in this particular nefarious action. And I don't get my information from Wikipedia when it comes to this stuff very often, but I was on the 
uh, Felix Gallardo Wikipedia page earlier today, and I saw that it said that he was the one that ordered the kidnapping. And I mean, he's he's I feel like he's just he's too old at the time and he's too smart. Like you said, I don't think that he would be doing that sort of thing. And, you know, Hector Boreas makes the assertion in the last narc that Agent Camarena gave up um, Captain Zavala's name and that Carl can or that um, Felix Gallardo either ordered folks to go out and pick up uh, Zavala or actually went with them. I don't think that I think that's just pure fantasy. I don't think that happened at all. Um, and so again, there's nothing to me that indicates that he was there. Um, and, uh, you know, the same thing goes with some of, of the, the higher ups. Well, and if there was allegedly so many, you know, what, six or so planning meetings leading up to it, you know, it's like, would obviously Felix would have been named as being at the house but anyways that's beside the point um so question two when it comes to cameron is what why would they record the interrogation in general i don't know um i'll be honest that that's perplexed me for a very long time and 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 here's why um You've got, let's say that, that all the, all the people who were said to be there were there. Gardoki and Manuel Bartlett Diaz and, you know, um, Felix Gallardo and all these others. Then who are you taping it for? Um, I think the most common belief is it's being taped to present to somebody in the Mexican government. Um, You know, I've also hypothesized that maybe it's just taped because the people doing the initial interrogations were police officers. That's kind of what you do when you're going to interrogate. And let's assume that the interrogation was just for Caro Quintero. Caro Quintero was pissed off about Buffalo, whatever else the case may be. He's not going to sit in there and listen to, three days or two days of, of interrogations, right? So the idea that he'd want to have it or that Fonseca would want to have the tapes makes sense to me. Um, and I think that, that that's the way I've always thought of it, is that it was taped just because, you know, leave it at that. Yeah, it was taped the- just because, and and it was taped, you know, so that they could go back yeah, and listen about to it. it. Think about the opposite. Um, okay, we're going to go, we're going to really venture out now. We're, we're going to pick up a DEA agent. Even, you know, no matter how you want to look at it, Carl Quintero, let's say it was just Carl Quintero or it was Carl and Fonseca or whoever, they had to have known that's a big freaking deal, right? So they pick him up. They're, and it's important enough to know what he to learn what he knows that you're going to interrogate him over and over and over brutally to try and get information. 
and then you're not gonna you're you're what just gonna rely on the interrogators to remember right and what did he say <laughs> two days worth of tire iron what did he say after that right oh he he said that it was at it, it was at la primavera no he didn't he said it was at la Placencia. no he didn't you know why wouldn't you record it I yeah. I think that's one of those things that maybe, and I'm guilty of it. I re- I remember, you know, way back in the '90s, thinking about this over and over, and like, why would they interrogate or why would they tape it? And maybe it's pretty simple, you know. If you're good, yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. Why wouldn't you? And I think I like you said. I I think it's I think that that part is totally overblown, and it's not as deep as people like to think about it. Especially with like, you know, and let alone when you start bringing in the CIA theory that the CIA wanted or was the one who recorded it. Not show up with a tape recorder, okay? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyways, so I think we got that one out of the way. Um, so number three, continuing on the Camarena thing, and this is the last one that we have, is uh, why would it be so easy to abduct Camarena in the first place? Um, <laughs> the, the flip answer is... Because he was late for lunch with his wife and was more worried about being late than he was um, aware of the circumstances. It can't be that simple. You have to come <laughs> with a theory here. But I, I so I have two other th- uh, uh, thoughts. Um, you know, w- one is it was broad daylight. It was right across the street from the. The consulate, it was in front of El Camelot where agents, you know, hung out a lot. It's where they always parked. Um, You know, it's entirely possible that it just flat out, he wasn't aware of it, wasn't thinking about it. Number two, and I've said this for a long time, and I've had some people who really know the case and the folks tell me that I'm completely wrong but when i heard kiki jr speak recently he gave some credence to this thought it's possible that agent camarena knew or recognized one or more of the kidnappers and i think it's entirely possible that he knew knew or knew who El Sammy was. And when he saw him coming, you know, didn't, didn't react too strongly to it or didn't worry about it. Um, you can maybe take it half a step back. And if El Sammy's walking up and showing DFS credentials, maybe Agent Cambrana saw the DFS credentials but didn't didn't recognize the people, but recognized their credentials, and I don't want to say let down his guard, but you know let them come up, um, and so you know, um, and the other thing is, I think it all took place really fast. You know, you're coming out, you're worried about 
being late for um, for lunch. You get to your truck, a car comes up, you know, pulls up, or some people come out, and it can happen really, really fast. Now, that doesn't that scenario I just depicted doesn't necessarily fit with every description of the kidnapping from, for example, Lopez Romero. And as we've talked about previously, I think it had been accepted for a very long time that Lopez Romero probably was one of the kidnappers. And that's why he could talk about it so freely um, and say things that made sense. Uh, I don't think he was anymore. And Mm. I think that when you start looking at things and, and Nate, you know this, but when we get the YouTube channel up in January, we're going to show some video. And I've got, we're going to show where things actually could have happened and where Lopez Romero says they happened and they don't line up. They don't make sense. But I think that it, it that to answer the question, I think he either recognized the credentials, recognized the person and, or just, you know, wasn't expecting, you know, who comes out expecting to get kidnapped in broad daylight right. across from the American consulate. And that had never happened before. So, I not mean, like you know, that. What, yeah. You know, they why would up, you, you know, they, they, right, shot, they shot up the house and stuff, but, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was a significant escalation. Yeah. It was extremely brazen. And you wouldn't think, Good you know, if, 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 <laughs> if you're, if you're walking outside from your work, you know, you're not probably thinking about getting abducted, especially when you're headed to lunch and there's no real, risk or warning no one's sitting there saying hey we think that you know the the the, quote guadalajara cartel is going to come and try and kidnap one of our agents and it might be you well it's so two so you don't have a warning or anything yeah i mean there was a little bit they were worried that that you know that they were that there was a higher degree of of concern um, but again, that's a little bit different than no, than thinking that they're going to do it, you know, at your work outside the office. <laughs> the other thing is keep in mind that Agent Kirkendall and Agent Bachelier had walked over to Camelot earlier and then called Agent Camarena. He went over to Camelot by himself, walked over to Camelot, and then he and Kirkendall went back to the consulate. So they've been walking back and forth already during the day. Earlier in the day, Agent Camarena had gone to an ATM, I think, on the other side of of, uh, the consulate. So he'd been walking around that day already with nothing happening. Again, doesn't mean that, that, you know, something couldn't happen. But I, I, I think especially because just a half hour earlier, you know, he'd walked back and forth across the street over to the Camelot. There was no reason for him not or to to, to expect anything like that. And so um, I, I think it was just, a, a, for him, obviously, a, a, you know, a bad set of circumstances. And as we've talked about over and over, the fact that they got incredibly lucky and, and it was a situation where he was by himself, he was in a hurry, there was no one else around. Um, 
you know, there were no real witnesses on the street. It was just a, it was a bad situation. Well, that's, you know, this is, you could make an entire podcast about this. So I'll just throw it out there real quick, but you have to wonder if it wasn't Camarena who had gone out alone, you know, would they have taken anyone who walked out of the DA's office, you know, or, but you know, that's all speculation. And like I said, you could yeah, and we'll, talk about that for hours, you know, we're going to get into the, the actual kidnapping a little bit more when we have some visuals on the, the YouTube channel. Um, and, 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 you know, there is a part of me that, that knows that some people who listen to this had a, you know, had a personal connection to agent Camarena. And I, you know, I hate to, to, um, to offend or upset any of them by going into too much detail on the, the kidnapping itself. Um, but at the same point in time, it, it, I think the, that if the more you look at it, the, the less you believe uh, some of uh, some of the alleged witnesses. Yeah. All right. We yeah. have gone an hour and 10 minutes, which is a lot longer than I think we expected to for those, uh-huh. for the two or three of you that stayed the whole time. Uh, thank you. Let me tell you about next week. So next week we are going to talk to Steve Duncan, who is, a retired special agent with the California Department of Justice. He was with them for about 20 years. Uh, He had 32 years in law enforcement, investigated street gangs, prison gangs, uh, cross-border violence, and he was intimately involved with the investigations into the Ariano Felix organization for about a decade or more. He knows more about them about AFO than anybody I personally know, and probably almost as much as anybody out there. He's going to come next week and talk to us. Um, I think that's going to be fascinating. He's going to tell me all the things that we got wrong, um, that I've gotten wrong. And I know for a fact that he's going to mention a few things that are well documented. They show up in Narcos Mexico, they show up in on Wikipedia pages that are flat out wrong. Um, going to be fascinating. He's a great guy. You're going to love this. Um, I really I want to plug the newsletter. You know, it, it's free. It's an email. It, it's it's kind of cool. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier, we we now have the YouTube channel in the works. By the beginning of the year, we're going to have it. You're going to have some really cool things on there. With that, thank you, Nate, for all your help today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Perfect.